I'm Stephen Main, filling in for Alan Kohler on The Constant Investor. Today in the spotlight, we're talking to Dean Patch, the best-known proxy advisor in Australia who founded and runs the firm Ownership Matters. Dean is one of the few people who can defeat resolutions at public company annual meetings if he tells his institutional clients to vote against. With a deluge of annual financial statements being released during this current reporting season, it's timely to chat to Dean. And I started by asking, what do proxy advisors actually do? We provide recommendations on how primarily institutional owners should vote their shares at AGMs and EGMs. And our approach is basically to try and, in a very constrained period, flag the issues that investors should be thinking about to defend and safeguard their ownership interests, which is something that all owners should do. Now, there are three players uh, in this market. There's, uh, there's two offshore global players, and you're the only local player. What's your personal history in this uh, proxy advisory space, and, and why does it matter for investors? Well, I've been doing it for 15 years now. Originally, myself and another guy who was an academic started, a, and we thought that there was room for an Australian-based shop that focused on not just the sort of tick-the-box approach to what governance was, but also had a, a decent look at the performance of a business. So we're interested in not just doing things off the desktop, but trying to understand whether the governance settings for a business are actually right. So we started a firm way back when called Proxy Australia, which we sold to the biggest offshore player, which was Institutional Shareholder Services, ISS, as they're known. I stayed and worked in that business for quite some period of time until after it had been through a whole series of ownership changes, myself and then lead uh, researcher uh, left to set up our own shop. So it's a sort of back to the future. So the three players in the Australian market are us, Ownership Matters, and then the two offshore players, ISS and uh, Glass Lewis. And they serve primarily the offshore shareholders who uh, look at Australian companies. I think the Australian uh, institutions, they have some client base there, but primarily the influence of the offshore players is with the offshore institutions, which are about 30% of the Australian, uh, the average ASX 200 company. Now, you've been doing this for 15 years. Are you firmly of the view there's a strong connection between good governance and financial performance for investors? Depends how you define good governance. So what I am convinced of is that any investor who avoids the duds um, can significantly add to their returns. So whether there is a magic template through which you can say there is good governance that leads to better returns, I don't think anyone's sold for that. Um, what I can say is that if you are very rigorous about excluding those with appalling governance, you know you can avoid the big blow-ups, and that's certainly our approach. I don't think that there is a linear relationship between a view on governance and investment returns. If there was, it would be really easy. We've done quite a lot of work in terms of our approach, which is looking like it's showing promising returns, where if you shorted our group of highest-risk highest governance risk stocks and you were long the remaining in a sort of market neutral sense, um, that would lead to outperformance, particularly in the smaller cap stocks. 
who are some of these duds? Let's think about this high profile, you know, over the journey, companies that had bad governance and were duds. Oh, well, look, I mean, it's pretty hard to go past the cowboys of the GFC, you know, the Babcock and Browns, the Allcos, the Rubicons, the MFSs. I mean, these things were governance Frankensteins. They were um, highly, uh, highly geared. Um, the executives were being enriched at the expense of um, both the shareholders and the customers. Um, and, you know, when the tide went out, um, there was nothing left. Um, so we were warning very consistently that these structures were set up to benefit the insiders rather than a, a proportional take for those that were bearing the ultimate risk and you know, were ultimately proved right. But it's not as simple as that for everything else. I mean, you know, there are catastrophic failures from an investment perspective, which is related to being, inverted commas, well-governed, but sometimes that's really just the market cycles playing out. And, you know, Australia's a highly cyclical economy. The worst examples are the smaller companies in particular that do the age-old trick of bringing forward revenue, doing accounting tricks to try and make their bonuses pay out or their share price pop so that they can sell. Um, and then they leave the last investors holding the baby. And so, you know, human nature is such that the incentives for sharper behaviour are many, um, and our job is really to try and call out those that we think are at higher risk of that, rather than, you know, finesse about valuations and things that an investor normally obsesses about. So we think this is a risk that that's hard to price. Like I think that's that's the basis. Governance risk is hard to price because it's only when big decisions come up or systematic behaviours are revealed that it really gets factored into investors' thinking. Let's talk about this financial trickery question. Are the Australian accounting standards and the corpse law strong enough in terms of keeping the financials reliable? Are there any changes you'd like to see on that? And also, do the auditors do enough of a good job to uh, protect the investors from financial trickery in the accounts? So, I mean, I think the accounting standards are up to the job. But that said, there's very little investor involvement in making the match fit for the little bits of trickery that you see. So the classic is around impairment testing of assets or in acquisition accounting where you can hide all manner of sins. But I think that's not where the key ruse is perpetrated on the market. It's really in the disease of underlying earnings. So there are very good reasons why you might present a figure to the market saying, you know, look, we've, we think that this underlying earnings gives a a fair view of what the real position of the company is moving forward. So in a real estate trust, you might strip out fair value gains or losses. So that makes a lot of sense. But people have taken this to the nth degree and you know, you'll often see, say, for instance, a retailer where they've expanded aggressively, they've fitted out a whole bunch of stores, they've spent shareholders' cash on that expansion policy. And when they've then decided that, that they've opened that store in a loss-making part of the world, they've written it off, they've had to pay a lease break, those costs, so shareholders' cash that's been expended on their expansion strategy is then excluded 
for underlying earnings purposes. And worse still, uh, management are often bonused uh, on the basis of underlying earnings. So who's done, who's done no that in the past? Oh, look, um, yeah, Super Retail Group are a classics of that. Now, my view is that uh, all's fair. You know, you, you should be able to present that view, but there seems to be no standard whatsoever around what is in or out of underlying earnings. And uh, investors really need to be to beware of that. They're, the accounts can be quite difficult and complex, but the statutory earnings, what the accounting standards and the auditor says, it's there for a reason. It's got hundreds of years' worth of history behind it. And, you know, the classic number, management number that people talk about is, you know, EBITDA, you know, so excluding depreciation and amortisation. But that's a real cost to shareholders. You've got to factor that in and underinvestment in you know, maintaining your capex can be as important to the long-term sustainability of the company than than anything else. So the lesson for investors is probably include everything in earnings, don't strip stuff out, and just look for a good, clean set of accounts with no extraordinary items or abnormal items. Well, you've got to have a view on whether those extraordinary items are genuinely going to be excluded or not, and sometimes there's very good reasons for that but we're very cynical on it when they've been excluded. When shareholders' cash has been spent on it and there's been no accountability, certainly in the incentives, that's a big red flag from our perspective. Now, speaking of retailers, you had a run-in with Harvey Norman last year. You recommended that investors actually vote against adopting the accounts. What's the issue with uh, Harvey Norman? The issue with Harvey Norman is the sort of quaint company in a way is that they're it was actually the last opportunity that investors will ever had to vote to accept the account. There's a non-binding resolution that, courtesy of their very old constitution they had. And we really took the view that the way in which the franchise model runs at Harvey Norman, it's very difficult for you to see the true underlying performance. And given the degree of control that Harvey Norman as franchisor has over its franchisees, we thought that disclosure would be majorly advanced um, if those franchisees were consolidated. Is that so, going to happen? Like The auditor obviously has some power there. Is Ernst & Young likely to step up to the plate and force consolidation? We've got absolutely no idea. It's heartening that both Harvey Norman and ASIC have acknowledged that they're doing a review of the Harvey Norman accounts. And, you know, it may well be that Harvey Norman are the best retailer on the planet. They may well be the best retailer on the planet. But the way for you to observe that would be to have a very timely view of when a customer walks out the door and pays cash, that that is received in the franchise or accounts, and consolidation would do that. So at the moment... The difficulty interpreting the Harvey Norman accounts, once you exclude the fact that they have some bizarre investments in dairy cows or mining camps or property development, on their retail business where they should be generating all of their cash, it's difficult to work out precisely the extent to which the revenue is matched by cash receipts. And that's important because, you know, from Harvey Norman's perspective, if I push stock or my franchisee orders stock from me, I book that as a sale, but there is a very large amount of receivables that one would expect from those franchisees. Now, they're very consistently over a billion dollars in receivables, yet Harvey Norman, whilst they wind up about a sixth of the franchisees every year, 
we don't know whether those receivables are going to be uh, paid. And so, you know, our issue was, you know, regardless, there's very legitimate reasons for you to have, uh, you know, make the accounting judgments that you make, but consolidation will eliminate all of the conjecture, all of the analyst doubt, uh, and it will precisely match cash receipts with the revenue that you're booking. So let's wait and see. I mean, the, uh, there's been a change of order partner. ASIC acknowledged that they're doing a review. Harvey Norman acknowledged that. There may well be change at the full year, but it's just speculation. We've got no idea and no, certainly no insight. Now, on your website, uh, the Ownership Matters website, you have a very interesting section called On Our Radar. Uh, it's fair to say there hasn't been a lot of regulatory reform in recent years. Uh, what is on your list in terms of changes you'd like to see to better protect investors in the Australian equity markets? Oh, there's a long list there. Look, I mean, I think the boring stuff of getting the governance infrastructure right is what I would like to see sort of consistently reviewed. So we no longer have the the CAMAC corporate law review mechanism where you can constantly do sort of a nip and tuck. I'd love to see a, a review of the listing rules from an investor perspective. That would be terrific. I mean, the ASX is responsible for, it's a for-profit entity for enforcing its own listing rules. And whilst it does that, there are sometimes very investor unfriendly things that emerge in those rules. So, you know, the classic here is around listing rule 1014, where, you know, investors get the opportunity to approve shares that are issued to executives or directors if they're issued. However, if the company spends shareholders' cash, the listing rules don't require... spends shareholders' cash and those shares are bought on market, the uh, shareholders don't have to approve them. I mean, that's one example, but there are many um, related party transactions in the listing rules. I would love to see a sort of root and branch review of how investor-friendly those are, because investors, frankly, are pretty much excluded from the developments in the listing rules. Very very slow process and so is the ASX a bit put, too what company driven investment banking driven driven by the transactions industry as opposed to the in the investment industry I think that's a fair point the council of financial regulators recommended that ASIC have the ability to impose listing rules on the ASX but that recommendation hasn't been followed I think that would actually be an excellent uh, reform to give investors more of a voice in the development of the listing rules. I mean, I think the takeovers regime uh, as well is works very well in Australia, but there are some real anomalies that have emerged. I mean, particularly takeovers by scheme of arrangement where there are different differential thresholds and, you know, investors can be transacted out of an, uh, a position that they want to maintain at a price they don't believe by a shareholder vote of, 75% of people who turn out to vote. So you prefer the spotless situation where you've got to stagger on to 90% before you get full control versus a scheme where 75% of those who turn up can make a decision that affects the other 25? I see it as a property rights issue. If an investor is bought an equity for and they believe the fair value is $10, why should they be compulsory acquired underneath that just by the fact that there is a scheme of arrangement which sets a a lower threshold. I just don't think that that is 
fair. We should have a debate about that. Now, speaking of property rights, Dean, capital raisings has uh, long been a bugbear of mine where uh, retail investors uh, often get diluted in capital raisings by uh, placements or by uh, non-renounceable uh, entitlement offers. So, how does our system compare with other countries? Like, it feels to me like a bit of an anything goes system for capital raisings. Uh, are the property rights of investors better protected in other jurisdictions? Yes, by convention in the UK is probably the best regime. So, I mean, this I was building up to this one, Stephen, because I knew you'd ask, but I mean, this is the classic where, you know, if you're you know, if there's a selective placement, if you're a retail investor and there's a selective placement that you don't get the ability to participate in and that placement goes away at a discount, for example, they're effectively you know, selling your interest in the company at a discount to someone else and they're diluting your earnings. It's a massive value leakage. And at the moment, we have a very laissez-faire system of capital raisings. So laissez-faire by you know, international standards, um, you know, you've got the ability to dilute people on a non-prorata basis 15% in one year without any uh, discount and you can go up to 25 in the small cap companies with some controls on the way in. That's a lot and what you're relying on there is directors doing their jobs. So we raised in the GFC, post-GFC period, we raised $100 billion dollars in capital. We paid $2 billion in investment banking fees. 45% of that went out by way of selective placement. So retail investors suffered an enormous dilution in that period with no comeback. They may have got a you know, small SBP to maintain their try and maintain their entitlement. But it just seems that the regulator has nothing to say on this. So you're very reliant on your on the directors of your company doing the right thing. And whilst we've seen in recent periods an increase in the fairness of capital raisings, I think more could be done to make rights issues, tradable rights issues, far easier. And that's, I think, where we lack the reform. There's this great haste, and that works for the underwriter, to have most of their market risk diminished by placements to institutional investors. But the retail investor can be darted in this process if they're just offered an SPP at the end or the fairest way to raise capital is via a rights issue. That is very much the default standard in the UK market. Yet here we sort of celebrate the fact that our capital raising speed means that we can get deals done quickly. That's great for the transaction industry. But there's no thought given to the cost of the dilution. And, you know, I think that there's a few votes in corporate regulatory reform. You know, the, the Hollywood stuff is around executive pay, the two strikes rule, etc. But, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of investors where, you know, if you're getting clipped a little bit on every deal, you know, it's the job of the market regulator to actually make sure that it's fair for everyone and capital raisings is really where the rubber hits the road for me. Now, Dean, let's finish off with Hollywood. We've got the the AGM season coming up and we're in the middle of the earnings season at the moment where we are getting most of the remuneration reports being released uh, with the actual earnings. So we get a a couple of extra months to look at it from uh, previous times. Um, There was big protests last year, the likes of uh, Goodman Group and CBA and Woodside and CSL. We had more than usual big protest votes against some of the big caps. 
are you expecting to see a repeat of that in the coming AGM season or have the issues that were around last year been fixed by some of these uh, big paying companies? Some of those companies that you mentioned have been out talking to their shareholders and have made commitments to review. And so we don't know until we actually see what the... um, what the pay rates have been for this year. So we'll be looking at those really closely. But the experience of the two-strikes regime is that if companies get large protest votes, directors who you know feel very sensitive with their personal reputation normally get out and, look, you know, to be frank, you know, change. There's some aberrations to that. You know, Cap Charge got famously sort of three strikes in a row, more than 25% of their shareholders voting against the remuneration report. But... The experience has been that year on year, if you get that first strike or you get close to that first strike, something normally changes and it normally changes for the better. So whilst the headlines of you know uh, poor um, outcomes on executive pay and performance you know really steady during uh, AGM season, you know, the bit that no one's talking about is that there's actually more of a commitment now to getting the settings right than there ever has been. So there's more dialogue taking place out of season between investors and boards on executive pay than at any other time that I've seen in the last 15 years. So I don't know what we're going to see this year. If history's any guide, we'll actually see those companies that were struck last year fix their game and, and be back into the 95% plus club on remuneration. Yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, there's certainly been a lot of work. So, you know, the CBA, for example, the CSL, um, companies with, a, you know, reputations to lose really gain nothing by running the gauntlet after such a strong signal that they received last year. Yeah. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. I'm Stephen Main. We've been talking to Dean Patch, one of the founders and uh, owners of Ownership Matters, one of the big three proxy advisors in the Australian market. Dean, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Stephen. Thank you.